0: Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the central role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Vince frost.
1: at frost collective our specialist place and environments teams work globally with architects developers cities corporations and governments delivering successful human-centered solutions across place visioning property branding and strategic wayfinding and signage to find out more head to frostcollective.com.au
0: in today's episode from lego to skyscrapers I catch up with a legendary Australian architect, Carl Fender. Carl is a remarkable positive guy with a passion for cities and the people that make them. It was an honour catching up with him and learning about his journey from Holland to Australia as a young child and the work ethic his parents instilled in him and the incredible experiences he has had along the way throughout his life. Responsible for designing some of Australia's most groundbreaking buildings including Eureka Tower and Australia 108. Carl is now spearheading the Merdeka 118 mega skyscraper in Kuala Lumpur. Hey, Carl, welcome to Design Your Life. How are you doing?
1: Yeah, great, Vince. Thank you. Great. Even though it's the uh, the first day of the fifth lockdown. I know. Uh, where I'm perhaps selfishly or privileged um, to be doing well because... Uh, our practice has now learnt to deal with it and deal with it very well. But, you know, the, the the retailers and the F&B people all around are really, really suffering. They're obviously the essence of the city, and so there's no life here at the moment.
0: No, it's incredibly sad. And, and Sydney the same. We've been in lockdown for two weeks, with another two weeks um, to go, I think. Yeah. Uh, you, just, you just showed yeah. me a video around your, your office, and it's just, you know... Almost 2,000 square meters, If nobody there. Um, it's incredibly sad, isn't it? I mean, everyone's working at home, of course. Um, they are. But it's very sad the heart of our businesses have been affected by by this to such an extent.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's very, uh, I look out there and it's very soulless at the moment. But look, you know, the, for some people, um, working from home is is a very good thing. It really helps them out. Home circumstance, distance of travel, that sort of thing. Yeah. And the practice has got adept at working very efficiently that way. In fact, our worry is that they might be working too efficiently,
0: not leaving <laughs> the desk. Mm. Yeah. Well, I just went down to – I'm living in northern beaches, and I went down to Palm Beach to walk the dogs earlier, and there's quite a significant number of people out there surfing. So I'm not sure if their bosses think that they're working but there's definitely a lot of um, physical activity going on which is good it helps for your general your general well-being um,
1: I guarantee that they're making up for it in a longer day
0: yeah a, a healthy
1: start in a longer
0: day it's okay yeah I mean we live in this in this incredible country we, we should absolutely make the most of it and speaking of yeah. that I, I came over here in 2003 to Melbourne that's why I first met you um, through Gary Emery when I joined forces with him and it was incredible to meet you at the time. So we've known each other for a very long time now and I've been a huge fan of, of yours, uh, your work and your firm's work over the years doing significant projects. But it's really cool to, to, to understand that you came from Indiz- Indonesia as a child. What was it like um, growing up in Melbourne? Um,
1: I did come from Indonesia, but as a Dutch citizen. Oh, <laughs> so I, <laughs> I was actually born in Holland, but my parents were both born in Indonesia as Dutch citizens. Amazing. And uh, I guess, you know, my father was trained as a naval captain in, in Amsterdam, and I mm. think that probably when they were going to have me, they went back to Holland for the medical system.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. At any rate, I, um, we, we arrived in Australia in 1952. My mm. first memory actually is on that ship coming over. Wow. At the age of, I don't know, four, I suppose, something like that. They came over as immigrants. Mm-hmm. And they were penniless after the war, and they just did so well. They, um, they, they worked at what they could. My father's, uh, his, his naval um, qualifications weren't recognised, so he couldn't afford to go through the process of getting them recognised. He worked at different places, ended up at the SEC, the State Electricity Commission, where he remained for his whole life. And my mother did all sorts of things, including being a tram conductress. Oh, wow. And... And together they were able to buy a little piece of land in Burwood mm-hmm. with a house on it, and they started there. So I grew up in the new suburbs, ah. and uh, Burwood then was the outer reaches of Melbourne.
0: Yeah,
1: and, and certainly as I grew up and enjoyed all roaming around all the houses that were being built and the, the dams and the a- agriculture out there, I didn't quite realise I was going to be the start of the suburban sprawl. Wow which which uh, you know I have opinions about now like we all do
0: do you think it inspired you to become an architect then or what yeah. what did inspire you to become an architect?
1: well maybe without realizing because with all these houses being built around there was a lot of surplus cutoffs you know mm. building materials and things and so we used to build huts <laughs> and uh, they were fantastic. I can still remember the hut in my backyard. Every little detail about it—the oh. secret trapdoor, so we could escape from my neighbor's sister <laughs>
0: when,
1: when she came, came over to uh, you know to uh, join our fun. Yeah, but, girls. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. At <laughs> that age.
0: Yeah, I can, I can relate and, to that. Exactly. Oh. Yeah. Wow. And and is amazing? Uh, I can't so, remember that far back. So, I remember build, building kind of billy carts and things like that, but I don't remember the detail. You've got, obviously got a good memory.
1: Yeah. But to answer your question, um, my mother was trying to help me decide on a course, a mm-hmm. professional course, as I was getting into the latter parts of high school. And she thought being an engineer and working for the government would be very safe. And so bless her heart and soul, she got me a handbook from RMIT. And in that handbook with engineering were all the other kind of building science mm-hmm. um, subjects. And I looked at engineering and I thought, oh my God, I hate that. <laughs> I, I, Love it. I do, I do not have a head for, the, for those calculations. <laughs> On the other hand, I saw the architectural subjects and I thought, wow, I love those. Mm. I love those. Wow. And so, again, to her credit, and my parents' credit, they took me to a friend of theirs who was an architect. His name was uh, Hank Remain, and he had an, an office and a house in the Dandenong's. What a
0: name. And they
1: took, yeah, they took me up there to see this house, and it was the first time I'd been in a house with cathedral ceilings and modern mm. and uh i went into his studio and rifled his drawers and looked <laughs> at his drawings and i thought wow this this really really is good yeah really really good and that just did it for me i was lucky i i i you know they they guided me to something that i really really related to
0: that's amazing I, there was mm. i can't remember who it was the Another architect we spoke to had a similar background of uh, parents really trying to push them into, I think they were trying to push them really hard into into engineering um and and he had to succumb to the the parents wishes i think i can't think of it who it was at the moment but it's wonderful that your parents exposed you to that isn't it i mean i can't imagine rummaging through some engineers drawers i can't imagine they'd be particularly interesting no no
1: it was not interesting (laughs) let's not let's not not put down engineers
0: they're important part of uh how this all how we all work
1: and Um, they are some of my very very dearest friends And I respect everything that they do, (laughs) but my head doesn't work in that. Well, it works in principles, Mm -hmm. but in terms of the detailed mathematics, for instance, for architecture in those days, you needed to do math, science, physics, chemistry. And guess what? They were the subjects that I just could not really cope with. So I failed my leaving, Mm -hmm. which was my penultimate year. Ooh. Had to re- had to repeat it. Got through it, Good. but well then done. I needed I needed my final year subjects to get into architecture, and I, I just couldn't get through it. So I started in drafting,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and drafting had a lot of the same subject as architecture. And once I was at RMIT and I was in drafting, I then started doing architecture subjects. Ah. So it was a, a nice way of of getting in there, and uh, and, and that's 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 how I. Basically, got through that hurdle.
0: Probably really hard to do that today, isn't it? They're probably more stringent around. Um, uh, there's you know,
1: there's or... no way you could do that today. No. no way. But it was easier then, and luckily I did very well in design, and uh, you know, no one asked me why I was there. <laughs> <laughs> And so, thank we God, just God kept you got going. through. Look at
0: you now, <laughs> my God! The the world's a better place for you persevering with it. Right. That's for sure. You're too kind. So, how did, what happened from there? You went to you went to uni, studied architecture sneakily, um, and then then what?
1: Well, I did, but you see, the great beauty about doing a drafting course is that it was two years full time, and then two years at night school. After two years in drafting, I needed to get a job. And I don't know what possessed me or why I thought I'd ever get a job in Robin Boyd's office, wow. but I tried and I did. And so, doing uh, night school, finishing the drafting, because I like to finish things. Mm-hmm. So, I, I actually do have my drafting certificate. Oh, well and done. Uh, I was doing architecture subjects. And then I was working in Robin Boyd's office, which was very small. And I felt like I was one of the master's apprentices.
0: Wow.
1: It was a very intimate, uh, you know, an intimate environment in that office. And it was very small. And so I personally uh, really prospered. Everyone in that office just adored Mr. Boyd. And and we respected so much of what he did. And we all felt like we were in a very, very privileged situation.
0: Talk about uh, Robin Boyd and, and his... Legacy, I guess, and why he's important to Australia's architecture. Um, because a lot of people listening in from around the world wouldn't be familiar, probably.
1: Well, unfortunately, he was cut down early in life, 52 years of age. And, you know, a lot of us think that he was really on the verge of doing some remarkable things. He had incredible friends around the world, like Kenzo Tange and Walter Gropius. And in the office, we were starting to look at high rise, higher density. Um, residential solutions Mm -hmm. but he was very well known for his uh, houses house designs and his exhibition designs he was just such a talented guy and and his writing his his very very um insightful writings about melbourne and the city and its its failures and its its potentials and i think it was very much in his writing that he uh, established uh, incredible uh, relevance in the history of the development of melbourne hmm.
0: where was he from originally because he must have been an emigre as well
1: no he, he was australian but oh, the okay. family comes from english background okay. yeah and of course the boyd family is uh, highly recognised in the arts uh, and he was you know he was part of a very very majestic uh, Australian family heritage. yeah. Mm.
0: And so what happened after that? You were there for a few years?
1: Well, I was there until the day he passed away oh. in the hospital, which was a great surprise. And to tell you the truth, um, two things. I could not imagine working anywhere else. So I was at a loss at where to go. But the other thing was because of the very intimate tuition that you got there, mm-hmm. uh, that we all got there, I was really, mm-hmm. I was doing a couple of houses privately down on the peninsula. Mm-hmm. So I took the opportunity, A, to study for some upcoming exams after he passed away mm-hmm. to uh, work on those houses. And I basically had my own house as a designer, uh, sorry, my own office as a designer mm-hmm. for the next four or five years before I joined uh, Graham Gunn and Lynn Hable, where I was for one year before I left Australia and started my overseas adventures.
0: Well, let's talk about that. Why did you leave Uh, Australia?
1: Travel in those days was always on the mind of young Australians. Mm -hmm. We all wanted to travel. Mm -hmm. And I found myself now at an age of about 27, uh, my wife and I had one child and she was pregnant with my second Mm -hmm. son. Mm -hmm. And we looked at each other and said, you know what? If we don't travel now, we never will. And so, you know, she was a very game person and we basically jumped into a plane and went to London. And with her at six months pregnant, so my second son's an Englishman. Uh, And and luckily there were a few architects there that I really wanted to work for. Uh I say luckily because I was able to get a job with one of them, which was Farrell Grimshaw, oh, wow. Terry Farrell and Nick Grimshaw. And so that was a, a, a great experience coming from Australia and coming from a residential architectural typology to an architecture of growth and change. So, um, and, and that's that's what happened. I was in London for a while and then we travelled in a combi wagon across Europe as Of course. Australians did.
0: (laughs) With two uh, young kids, that's that's challenging. Yes, yes,
1: it was. Uh, They slept in the van, we slept in the tent. Oh, wow. And uh, we drove into Rome, and it was Firo Gusto, so it was pretty closed down. Uh But I got a job there, and it was with an American firm called Brown Daltus, Mm. and they were doing work uh, mostly in Saudi Arabia, Mm. which at the time was very strange not a lot of western firms were doing work in in the um, emirates or in saudi and it was um, it was just it was a fabulous period of time almost 5 years of just living in rome living right in the center near piazza not the man, di spagna <laughs> we did really we, d- we drove in i got the job from camping flaminia and so the first few weeks of working in Rome, I was waking up in the morning from a tent (laughs) and having the camping grounds, first cold shower and getting on a bus and going into Rome. (laughs) But it wasn't long afterwards that we got a little apartment right near Piazza del Popolo and I was walking via De Babuino and up the Spanish steps to work every day and it was just such a wonderful and privileged experience, yeah.
0: Did you pick up the language while you were there?
1: Oh, I'd like to say yes, but I can't. It was enough to survive on.
0: Yeah, I guess it's an
1: American firm. I was working in an Italian sort of environment for Americans, Mm -hmm. uh, really enjoying that, but um, we were quite well looked after by Italians and – uh, our need for Italian was really for survival, things like food and, mm. you know, travel on buses and whatever. But mm. uh, And, uh, you know, we were so busy, I didn't even have the time to just start studying um, Italian. Mm. We worked with a boss, Spiro Daltus, who, if he liked you and the way you worked, you became a slave.
0: <laughs> How kind. You,
1: You worked twenty-four-seven. Yeah, and if he didn't like you, uh, you were frustrated, and you sat in a corner and worked away. Unfortunately, I suppose I I fell into the first category. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I bet your life. Your wife probably didn't like that. Was she at home alone with the kids? uh, Well, home alone
1: in Rome is not so bad. No, that's true. That's true. Especially in that part of Rome.
0: Yeah, (laughs) spectacular city.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was. So,
0: So, what happened after that?
1: Well, the only way that you were allowed to leave that office, if you were one of the chosen, was to go to Harvard, because that was his alma mater, and wow. he could understand that you weren't leaving him, right. you were going to his school. Yeah. He was a disciple of Eero Wow. and he, had, he was quite a personality and uh, very, very focused and very interesting, but... At any rate, I thought after almost five years, I thought, geez, this is not gonna work. Uh, this, you know, it's it's wonderful being here. Mm-hmm. I've learned a hell of a lot, but we need to get a bit of balance into our lives. So I applied at Harvard with fingers crossed and amazingly got into what was called a Master's Two course, which was uh, a course for 14 people annually mm-hmm. who were chosen in pairs to Australians. To Japanese, to Taiwanese, mm-hmm. to this, to that, to Americans, like, and like um, Noah's
0: Ark. <laughs>
1: yes, <laughs> it was exactly right. So, luckily, I I got in, and that got me from um, Rome to the States, yeah. where I did my masters, and um, and came back to uh, Australia after that, but then left a few short years later. My first wife and I um, uh, parted ways and uh, the office that I was in, which again was with Graham Gunn, um, uh, it, 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 there were probably too many directors so I volunteered to go back to Rome, mm-hmm. <laughs> as, as you would, yeah. and, uh, but I only made it to Hong Kong and that started <laughs> the, whole Asian, <laughs> the whole Asian experience. Oh, my God. I look you know, I dropped in on the our friends at Denton Corker and Marshall in oh. Hong Kong and they seemed very happy and busy. And rate, anyway, I got a, a job with a local firm. It helped me financially, very yeah. low tax in Hong Kong. Yeah. And that started the whole Asian adventure. Oh. So um, and that went for about five years till I uh, again came back to Australia, and that's when I did meet Nonda. And uh, we were just um, – I met him because I was a jury chairman in the awards system here. And I looked – with my jury, we looked at a little restaurant that he'd done top end of Burke Street and oh, thought, yeah. wow, this is actually really cool. This is an incredible use of materials and detailing. And um, so we gave it a gong and that was that. I then uh, – very quickly, um, I was back in Melbourne, and um, and I guess I needed a job, and I joined Nonda and Kevin Greenhatch in a firm called Axia, mm. and uh, we we worked there for a, um, a while. But look, I had met by then Bob Nation, and um, I did. Uh, Axia sort of, Nanda and I departed, went out separate ways. I think Kevin went on to a quite a successful career in Axia. Nanda started his own practice and I started with Bob Nation, um, a firm called Nation Fender. Mm. And we had a, a very large job in Bangkok, which is where we both ended up relocating to. Mm. And we set up a business there to complete a city, a satellite city called Mung Tong we all stayed in touch. And then, um, when I, when Tong Tani was finished and uh, I came back to Australia and, uh, we then, um, formed Nation Fender Mm -hmm. Katsalidis. got back together with Nonda and, um, and Bob was with us for, uh, for five years until he started his own practice. And so that's when, um, uh, when Fender Castellides started,
0: ah, I see Bob a lot in Sydney. Uh, yes, he's a yes. great guy. Like, he like he, ba- he
1: got house. a very major job in Sydney and um, set up his own business to complete that job. Ah. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's cool. So, how long has your firm been going for now then?
1: Well, since 95, so 95. So it's okay. 25, 25 years.
0: Yeah, wow. Actually, that's the year that we started Frost Design in London. So, um, Ah it's um it feels like a, it feels like a long long time. But that's cool. So you've been then focused in Melbourne, not not going all over the place, but probably working around the world. Yeah, yeah. Did you get remarried?
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. You missed that bit. Yes. Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, you know my ex-wife is doing well with her new husband. I think she thanked me because I think she <laughs> <laughs> their new husbands, much uh, much more appropriate than me, oh. um, and I'm um, we we remain very good friends, and I'm um, happily still married with Sarah, oh. <laughs> and we and so uh, my first wife and I had three kids, yep. two sons and a daughter, and Sarah and I had um, one daughter. Oh wow! Or have one daughter,
0: <laughs> and have you got grand grandkids? I've
1: got eight. Well, eight granddaughters, one still in the womb, but eight granddaughters that range from 12 to still in the womb.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. You must be a good granddad, I can imagine. What what was Nanda's background? Where was he from? Where's his uh, heritage?
1: His heritage is Greek. Oh, Greek, okay. And uh, he he grew up um, basically in Fitzroy. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, he, I think, um, yeah, he very different upbringing to me in a way because he he lived in urban, he, he grew up in a very urban environment, and I grew up in a suburb. Mm. And uh, you know, and now he's got his, he he's got, um, you know, he lives in the city, but he's also got a country property, yeah. and I've just really stayed in the city
0: yeah well we'll talk about where you live in a minute because it's really really cool um Mm. what's it like working co-owning a business with a friend uh, after all this time did you did you both think that your firm would grow to the extent Mm. that it had that it has in um Uh, over the last 25 plus years whatever it is
1: i i can't speak for nanda but I, i think it's the same as for me we just we we came together we had work we wanted to do it well, and it led us down a path of a you know reasonably successful practice. It's had a bit of influence in Melbourne in terms of introducing you know high density residential into the city,
0: mm-hmm.
1: starting at a time when there wasn't very much, if any, residential in the city.
0: Yeah, it's Melbourne um, of all the cities uh, seems to have done that incredibly well. And obviously you played an important part in that because the Aussie Aussie dream is to have a block of land, right? A nice house and a garage and all those things that go with it. Um, Over the years, I know when we moved to Australia in 2003, 2004, I was fascinated by, we were staying at uh, my ex-wife's parents' place in Beaumaris, which again, is a lovely part of the world. And every every conversation, any kind of picnic, they're Italian, so it's a lot of of food involved (laughs) in getting together. And a lot of the conversation was about subdividing, you know, subdividing this block in Carnegie or here or there, whatever Morris or wherever it might be. I was just fascinated by that because I could just see, like, wow, that's a really smart move, you know. It's like you got one big block, cut it in half, create two townhouses or two homes, and it, yeah. it's a, a way of it's a way of life in a way in Melbourne, isn't it? It seems to be very much part of uh, what happens there, and I guess. There's only so many times you can subdivide before you start creating towers or or apartment uh, living.
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, certainly when my parents were starting in Australia, you know, Australia was a dream destination because you could buy land, you could build a house, um, you could live amongst, you know, neighbours, not too dense.
0: It was very affordable.
1: And th- yeah, and I think that, you know, post-war immigration, that was a fabulous kind of opportunity for a lot of people coming out of very difficult so- um, situations in Europe mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and Asia too. And, uh, and, and hence, you know, the growth of the suburbs. It was just such a popular, popular way of living. But, you know, it, it, it spread and it spread and that meant that you were no longer in a suburb close to your place of work, if, if Melbourne Central was your place of work. So I think over time that produced a whole new paradigm of how to live. These people that did come and live in the suburbs decided that, you know, that the traveling was just too onerous. Mm. Their kids were leaving mm-hmm. and they didn't need the bigger houses. And so apartment living, which of course is how most of um, other parts of the world live, mm. uh, it was only natural, not a strange thing, wow. even though in Melbourne it was regarded as a strange, perilous uh, yeah. movement. Yeah, probably uh, the unnecessary start of it, <laughs> considering how
0: much space was around. But is, was it your experience yeah. in London and Rome, etc., that influenced you, your uh, progression into that area?
1: Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I've bought... and. Uh, I've lived in two houses, one was my parents, and I've bought one house, which was um, in my first marriage, which was in Box Hill. Mm -hmm. When we left that house and started living in London and Europe, we were obviously in apartments, and we were right in the middle, living in Camden Town in London and Piazza di Spagna in Rome. Mm -hmm. Um, All of a sudden you realise that apartment living is just, so rich in opportunity and convenience, mm. and then I went to the States, and uh, we lived in a marriage student housing apartment by Jose Luis Cert, and you know it, apartments are just a natural way of living. Yeah, and and, and I'm not um, I'm not saying that everyone should live in an apartment, but and Melbourne's great because. You can live in an apartment close to work. You can live in the country. You can live in the suburbs. There's many, many options. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of the early criticism of high-density residential living in Melbourne City particularly was ill-founded, but only because it was strange and new. And I think that um, now it's a very much accepted way of living and the focus of any criticism is actually just on the quality of those apartment buildings. And and that's a that's a criticism that should be leveled at every building, whether it's residential, office, whatever.
0: Melbourne of all places, I remember coming here uh, before we moved here and, and just being blown away by the variety of architecture in Melbourne and the confidence and the creativity that it was of these incredible buildings, homes, standalone homes or buildings or offices or libraries they were all incredibly playful and creative and and I'd never seen that before creative confidence in a way that I hadn't seen in Sydney and I'm just I know we talk about it a lot people always compare the two places but I'm really intrigued by that and what do you think it is that's made Melbourne such a such a creative place
1: it's it's interesting because the city of Melbourne and the city of Sydney the fabric of those cities is obviously quite different I think the the opportunity for um, as much high-rise intervention uh, in the very central part of Sydney is not quite the same as what it has been here. And the surroundings, the inner city surroundings of Melbourne have been a great opportunity for um, very, you know, quite tall high-density buildings to enrich the population close in. And, and you also mentioned London, um, and London is obviously huge, and has, and, and most of London has a heritage mm. a characteristic. Mm-hmm. So in London, it has to be a very disciplined approach yeah. to how high density is placed within the existing infrastructure and um, and, and and built form. And so that's why it's, it's clustered there and it's very, you know, it, it, there are very important view corridors and, this, and that kind of shapes London as well. But even in London, we're seeing quite a an array of disciplined um, but good design. So, look, I think the opportunity in Melbourne for inner city higher density in a way has been um, more on offer than in Sydney and that means that um, – you know, there's more opportunity for 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 invention, and and there's there's more of a density of new buildings. So it's it's quite a different characteristic than in 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 Sydney.
0: Mm. I think Sydney's uh, gaining more confidence, and there's some really cool things happening uh, now. But I remember driving around uh, in probably 1994 around near Kew Gardens, and 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 someone pointing out a wood marsh house which looked like a was rusty steel (laughs) unusual shape and I was like oh my god what is that you know is that a house is that an office is that um something that's fallen out of space it was it was it was just such a it was just such a nice juxtaposition that actually works amongst you know what was I guess more kind of um I don't know what period they were probably um federation homes and things like that um yeah. around that area. But it just it just like it going that person's committed to design. That commission that person's commissioned that building, you know, what's their life like? Their car, how do they live? What's their clothes like? What is their how do they live there? Like? Because you couldn't do that, like you'd have to change you'd have to be fully committed to that type of home, right?
1: Yeah. But you know, if if you if you look into Sydney and the inner environments, there are some fabulous houses and pieces of architecture that are just you know beautifully crafted and they're quite exploratory and uh mm-hmm. so it's, it's quite easy to generalize about okay we're more creative here and the blah 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 but look i think you know I, i'd rather talk about you know the level of design in australia okay good. and and i and i think that the uh you know australian architects are just a class above so many i don't know why we're so Mm. Um, in a way uh, not embarrassed about that but this need to have you know architects from around the world coming in to show us how to do it I think is an absolute fallacy I think our architecture is equal to anything that's uh, done in in anywhere in the world both conceptually and in terms of its craft and I I, I think we're starting to um I think we're starting to really understand that and, and respect that.
0: I, I totally agree. We did. Um, uh, we worked with. We did the uh, uh, architectural biennale, uh, Venice Biennale exhibition in two thousand eight, um, and that was um, it. Was amazing. There was three hundred architects' models from from around the country <laughs> that we exhibited. There and it was just incredible to see the, the, the diversity, the confidence, the, the variety, the talent. Mm. Um, and again that I guess that was focusing on you know, not looking outside of Australia but looking at the, the sheer talent that's that's been grown here. It's incredible.
1: Mm. And also in Australia, we've got a lot of different climates and geographies and uh, coastal conditions and country conditions, and all of this happens in this one country. And so our architects are dealing with, uh, you know, a vast array of different uh, circumstances when they're designing. So the kind of designs that are created in that environment become rich and varied.
0: Yeah. Well, let's just fast track because... Out of all, out of that, and all the experience you've got, you actually designed Eureka Tower in Melbourne, which is literally across the road from where you are right now in your in your office, and that was the world's tallest residential tower. Um, and he- I think it was the tallest in the southern hemisphere okay. at the time. All right, yeah. all right. You don't want to claim the world, okay? <laughs> but still significant.
1: I, I don't want to claim tall. <laughs> I think tall's meaningless, actually. Okay.
0: All right. All right. But I mean, that obviously must have been that brief coming. How did that brief come to you guys? And, and like, that must've blown you away. Just the thought of a building of that size and that scale, um, in significance for Melbourne too, because that's uh, that was a first.
1: We've had the benefit, this practice of NONDA's ability to, uh, combine development with architecture. And the very first projects we did, in Melbourne, the residential projects were actually our projects because Nanda created them. He was a developer, mm. and he and he had terrific development partners like Adrian Cleve and Adrian Valmorbida, um, and going further on Benny Aroni and uh, Tab Freed, even Daniel Grollo. And with this group of people, um, the residential projects uh, were able to be really, really beautifully designed and thoughtfully created. And, and so we started with Melbourne Terrace, I guess, then Republic Tower. So Republic Tower was like Melbourne Terrace vertical, mm-hmm. about 100 apartments. Um, and then uh, Nonda got interested in this piece of land on South Bank.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And again with uh, Tab and Benny Aroni and later on Daniel Grollo, um, the development team made this project happen. It had a permit at the time for two towers done by other architects. And when we studied that, they had certain shadow and wind implications. And I think that we thought about putting one building on top of the other, which was very, very counterintuitive in a way, because... At that stage, Inner City Residential was fairly new and it, it was usually about 100, 150 apartments. But this was putting two buildings together vertically mm-hmm. and creating, um, you know, over 500 apartments, almost 600 apartments in one stage. The, the, the selling of 600 apartments huge. in a in a building that was the tallest building in the Southern Hemisphere and untried as a commercial venture in Melbourne was quite um quite brave mm. and uh, and luckily we we got a, a a planning permit for it wow i say luckily because you know so uh, it was quite an intervention in the area and furthermore when it went on the market in about year 2000 it was really really excitingly accepted by melbourne mm. For me, that was just a terrific indication of how sophisticated Melbourne is mm. and certainly was at that time yeah. to really believe that a building like that could provide wonderful um, residential accommodation. So it was very, very successful and remains so.
0: How long did it take to develop?
1: Well, it went on the market in 2000 or uh, for about a year after that so, and it was finished... Construction was finished in 2005, which is when I, uh, Sarah, and I moved in.
0: You're on the 71st floor, right?
1: Yes, yes. That that must
0: be incredible. And you you show me a picture of uh, you being surrounded by clouds. You're literally living in the clouds. That's incredible. Well,
1: it is. Look, it it is amazing to live that high. Um, Sometimes you're above the clouds. Sometimes you're in the clouds, and most of the time you're under the clouds. But every sunrise and every sunset is different and wonderful. But listen, um, if you have a look at my latest Instagram posting, mm-hmm. you will see a little movie I took of Australia 108, which is the building we completed next door. And that little movie is time-lapse, and it shows you the cloud movement around that movie here. And it just summarizes some of the extraordinary things uh, that you see in a few seconds of time lapse. Incredible. It's really it incredible. How
0: many apartments are in that tower?
1: Uh, Eureka mm-hmm. Towers, about 590 apartments.
0: And how many people, who are the kind of people that bought into it? Were they the people that, that are living in it as well, or are they investors?
1: No, it was absolutely owner-occupiers. Amazing. And so the apartments are larger apartments. It's for people that were used to having, you know, house and land, mm-hmm. but wanted to be in the city. And so, you know, they've come to Eureka Tower, very diverse group of people, multinational, mm-hmm. um, a lot of locals, uh, professionals, uh, early retirees. It's, it's quite a, an interesting mix of people, very nice community.
0: It's really quite a, It's contributed to making Melbourne a a metropolitan city, hasn't it? I mean, just with that that scale. And I guess there's been other buildings that have followed on the back of that.
1: Well, I think so. I think it was important because uh, South Bank was actually one thin skin of buildings along the river edge, Mm -hmm. and Eureka came just beyond that first skin of buildings and started to introduce density on the other side of the river. And in a way now, with with the whole of the South Bank area, uh, it's quite dense. A lot of people live here. And it's shifted the centre of gravity of Melbourne City. The, the river is now more part of the city rather than on an edge of the city. Mm. It's a very vibrant area and everyone that lives here has the advantage the proximity to the city without necessarily being right in the hustle and bustle but incredible connection to the whole arts precinct and the gardens and you know the botanical gardens and uh, and a very quick connection to the freeway system to go to airport or to east and west it's uh, it's a great location
0: it's, in- it's incredible we talked to um uh un studios uh this week too uh regarding South Bank by <coughs> Eula, which is mm-hmm. near, nearby, as you mentioned. And uh, there's going to be another significant um, two towers uh, addition to the area.
1: Yes, indeed. Yeah.
0: Really cool. What do you do with your free time away from work? Or do you have any um, free time?
1: <laughs> My free time gives me time to work freely. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, Look, uh, what can I say? Um I love working and um, and that's the sort of thing I can do and be at home. Mm. It's not like I'm away from home enjoying my free time. Uh, but, you know, the, the projects bring opportunities too. For instance, the, the large project we're doing in Kuala Lumpur, mm. uh, it's a huge project and we've been working on it for 10 years and I've been travelling uh, consistently and often to Kuala Lumpur to, um, you know, for all the necessary meetings and, uh, and, uh, and the sort of activities associated with getting a big building like that designed and built. Having to go to that uh, city so often, my wife uh, comes with me and uh, our daughter used to when she was younger, yeah. and I'd get through the business and then we could go to somewhere like Langkawi Island. And uh, rest and recuperate and play a bit of golf, and so the idea of that work-life balance that Mm -hmm. projects like that can generate is exceptional and privileged. Mm. Uh, You know, it's it's not like having to separate. Oh, right now work stops, now I play. It's I don't know. It's it's a blend.
0: That's interesting. How does that feel being in Kuala Lumpur in terms of your kind of your heritage? Does that feel like your home?
1: Well, no, because <laughs> okay. um, uh, because I I my first few years were in yeah. Indonesia <laughs> yeah. and uh, in Batavia, which is now of course Jakarta. Mm-hmm. So there's uh, there's a proximity, but I have to say I've spent a lot of my life working in. I lived in Hong Kong, working in China. Mm-hmm. I've you know we've worked in Indonesia, we've worked in Malaysia, and um, it just becomes part of a natural life. uh, I think Australians really do work well in other overseas environments. I think that we have got the capabilities of being good at what we do and being able to be flexible in different cultures and actually integrate well. And um, certainly that's been the case in KL. I've really, really enjoyed it. And our team members here that go over to KL, um, they've... I think they've really enjoyed it. We have a lot of Malaysians working in the office. So.
0: And when will that t- t- be completed, that tower?
1: Well, um, the, the tower itself is at height. It's got a mast on top of it, which is nearing completion, and the external cladding of the building is now also uh, near the top of the building. So it's, um, you know we would say that that tower will be complete this year uh, with the spire on top. But it's only part of the development. Mm-hmm. That tower sits on um, a very, very important piece of land. Mm-hmm. It's a heritage site. Mm-hmm. It's the site where independence was declared in 1957 on the grounds of Stadium Merdeka. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and Stadium Merdeka is a place that um maybe once was in a garden setting but over time that degenerated and it became just this beautiful old reconditioned stadium with another stadium next to it called stadium Nagara. and the the creation of this building and everything else that he brought has really made a beautiful setting that heritage environment mm. so even though this tower is over 650 metres tall next to a stadium which is at ground level it acts as a marker an urban marker in the uh, in the built fabric of KL wow. for the heritage site and it brings with it 100,000 square metres of retail and some residential towers coming out of the retail it brings a huge amount of gardens uh, to Stadium Rodeca, so it's going to become a real people's place. And it's also brought a lot of infrastructure, tunnels, overpasses, road improvements, and so even in the sometimes very hectic traffic conditions in that area currently, even with the additional population that we're bringing there, uh, the modelling shows that the traffic will ease. We've got a new subway that comes in and stops at our um, at our site. So, you know, these projects of this scale, complexity, and they have a power to bring infrastructure mm. and uh, infrastructure presence and community facility.
0: Mm. Incredible. And this
1: one, do- and this one, does all of that.
0: Yeah. Are you part of the whole master planning of that? Yes. That must feel incredible. I mean, if you you look back in your early beginnings when you're designing a home and compare that to the scale of a place like this, this is like, that tower uh, is is more than twice the height of Eureka Tower, isn't it? Yes, yes. Like, it's just incredible to, like, how, does, how do you, how do you go from that, that scale, that doubling of a previous project? Is it this incremental over time that you've? picked up the experience to be able to kind of handle that type of project? Or is it, if you could do you could Eureka Tower, you could do one that's twice the height. I, I don't know. I'm really intrigued to understand how you get to that. Well,
1: you know, isn't life great? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the accumulation of knowledge, you know, over a, a lifetime of working, of course, these things don't just come in sudden jumps, or it hasn't for us no so you know i still remember my first house that i ever designed and i remember it as vividly in terms of its task as the task of um, designing merdeka 118 in kl mm. some 50 years later <laughs> amazing so uh, but look look you know the the act and art of design has got basic principles. And those basic principles really exist for any scale of project. Mm -hmm. Now, as the projects get bigger, they obviously have technological requirements that um, become more complex. But you also don't do it uh, alone. Mm -hmm. You gather the people around you who have got experienced and who as a team can come together to make extraordinary pieces of engineering and servicing um, and scale work. It has to work. Mm. It has to be safe. It has to resist wind earthquake. Uh, It has to resist all the forces of nature. And the thing about a project like this one is that the structural principles Um, are still the same. You're still dealing with gravity and you're still dealing with lateral loads from weather. Mm -hmm. But you deal with it in different ways. And certainly on this building, we just had the best consultants from around the world and Australia. We had, as a structural engineer, Les Robertson from New York, who unfortunately passed away after an illustrious career, still working in his 90s but you know he he partners partnered with robert bird from australia and um, the structure of the building is just something to behold it's
0: incredible on the
1: one hand it's 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 huge and on the other hand it's an art form
0: i was going to say the the engineers i can see now why the engineers are your friends <laughs> you really need them <laughs> yes. you really need to have a good one to work on a pro- projects like this well you you
1: need them but projects like this become the vehicle for friendships. That's true. The, the vehicle for testing uh, knowledge and approaches and, you know, that, that's the basis of, of, you know, great relationships.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, on a, on a, it's kind of a nice little segue, but I remember um, someone said to me a few years ago, why have all your friends photographers and <laughs> other designers or <laughs> architects and stuff? And I go, well, I just have a lot, a lot in common with them. I really enjoy <laughs> yes. that friendship. We have a lot in common. We can talk about things that we all relate to. I think it's important yes. in life to to surround yourself or, ha- or make friends with people that are you have that in common with, and I think that that makes your yeah. life richer as a result. Yeah. Because it's not work, is it? I, I don't consider what I do as work. I, I love what I do. I love what our, our, our business does day in, day out.
1: Uh, I couldn't agree more. And look, any architect will tell you that the Projects these days are getting bigger and more complex, and it's an age of collaboration. Sure. Um, and collaborations bring a lot of uh, incredible minds to the table. and um, And the project in KL has definitely been a series of amazing collaborations, global collaborations, including the local architects. You know, so we we did the design work in Melbourne. Uh, and we have um, a very, very experienced architect, uh, Gerard Van Beek, who lives in KL to ensure that the translation of the, uh, the designs is seen in the fit and finish mm-hmm. as the building is built on site. But, you know, our local architects are fantastic and so we, who look after the, um, uh, the authority work and the construction documentation and, uh, we've traveled the world together, looking at everything from stone types to elevator systems mm-hmm. to whatever. And we've traveled that with our clients and with our, um, architect partners and you can't help, but, you know, develop respect and friendship. And, uh, and that's the, that's the power of these huge, really huge buildings.
0: What what is the? It's wonderful to hear that too. That that collaboration, the support, uh, trust. I guess is a lot to do with it too, right? And and mm. uh, working with the network around you to make this happen. If you had a, if you had given the brief, was a brief to kind of just say like, get to this height, or how high can we go, <laughs> or would you have gone higher if you could?
1: <laughs> well, let's first of all, it's I. Uh, uh, I'd like to say that our mandate is not to create height for height's sake.
0: You've said that a couple of times now, so I've got to, I've got to start listening to what you're saying here. Well,
1: you know, globally, um, there's this thing about height, you know, the highest, the highest, the highest. Yeah. And um, I also sit on the, um, on the jury. I, for the last few years, I've been jury chairman of the um, uh, Council of Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat. Um, which judges each year the best tall buildings in the world. Mm -hmm. And it's not about being the highest. It actually categorises the building in different heights so they can be compared, you know, up to 100 metres, 200, 300, 400, Mm -hmm. and so on. And it's, it's more to do with quality. Within those heights, it's to do with the quality of the building, what it gives back, you know, what it's what the innovation aspects are and this this is far more important than height the thing about height is they have a significant impact on their built environment and so obviously a building like the burj khalifa or merdeka 118 when it's finished will be judged not on its height but on its contribution mm is it a great piece of architecture is it a sculptural thing of wonder in a in a certain precinct does it bring extra facility and improvement to the environment does it contribute in ways of energy saving does it gain you know does it make a a better place for people and these are all the really really important qualities so When we started Medeca, we were asked if we'd be interested in working on a tall building, just a tall building. And that tall building had to uh, house a certain amount of office space, a hotel, Mm -hmm. some restaurants, and a sky deck. Mm -hmm. It had to have a certain amount of retail, a certain amount of residential, Mm -hmm. and it had to go on one of the most important heritage sites in Malaysia, Mm -hmm. and that's how it started. It didn't even say where should the building go on the rather large plot of land. So the first thing we had to do, and you mentioned urban design, was to put the building in the right place. Mm -hmm. And the building was positioned on an axis with Stadium Nagara, which then enabled another axis to be created along the front of Stadium Medeca, and that axis became the Garden Axis. Mm. And so you've got a very nice triangular relationship between Nagara, Medeca, and Medeca 118. Medeca, by the way, means freedom. Mm. So Stadium Medeca was the freedom the Freedom stadium. Um, and that's, that's how it all started. And then as we started putting in... All the accommodation, we started to get to a height. And then we had the sky deck, and it was felt that a spire on the building would help announce that building in the context of the city of Kuala Lumpur. Now, interestingly, there's a very famous photograph of the then Prime Minister raising his hand with his finger pointing upwards, declaring the state of independence. And that gesture, that very famous photograph, has been linked as, a, um, as, as one of the inspirations for this building and the spire on top. So the people of KL or Malaysia think that the building signifies that moment mm. of the Declaration of Independence, which is a beautiful thing.
0: Wow.
1: It's a beautiful thing. It's great when buildings like this contribute to the legends within, uh, within any city
0: that's incredible. And how going back to, I'm nervous about talking about height now, because I don't know how to say it without upsetting you. <laughs> no, <laughs> but, no, 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 no. But you could have it's gone not, higher, right? Or not? You, Can you, you structurally... You could,
1: in- Les, Les Robertson used to say there's no limit to height, especially if you build on the equator, <laughs> where the gravitational forces are somehow uh, compelling for height. But, um, look... You know, height's, height is great. Height's what makes cities, skylines. Mm-hmm. It's only this, the thing that embarrasses me a little is this quest for the highest.
0: Mm.
1: I love height. I've got to say, I love high-density, high-rise buildings.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: As much as I like beautiful homes, crafted homes, mm-hmm. they all have a a, a place in our world and in our lives and you know high rise high density it makes great land use and brings people to um city centers mm-hmm. where there's a lot of employment and activity and i i think that's terrific
0: i can't wait to see I that think, come to life
1: that's yeah be, be well you know and i think that um high rise high density high rise you know it does suffer criticism about sustainability and community living and all those things. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that these tall buildings can and should be and are now more often becoming the powerhouses, the buildings that um, my dear friend Ross Harding, who's an environmentalist and sustainable engineer, says, uh, you know, these buildings should be contributors rather than consumers Mm -hmm. and they and they have the the financial framework to incorporate the um the mechanics of creating you know uh energy from waste and and sustain and and harvesting uh sunlight or even light for energy and, and and saving water and you know it's it's yeah. The, they are the buildings that can really become the power generators. Mm. And they're the buildings that can become the really, really strong communities of the future. Mm. And they're the buildings whose physical presence determines the kind of built fabric and stature of cities. So I, I, I'm very fascinated by all of that. And, um, you know, and and I, I really enjoy uh, the tall building typology. I think it's very relevant.
0: I think it's uh, it certainly gives me more confidence knowing that you live on the seventy first floor. So you're you know what went into that building, <laughs> you could, and you feel you're happy living there. And it's it's uh, it's a really great uh, it's, you're living and breathing it. You know.
1: Yeah, and you know we don't live on top of even though we're next door to our neighbours with the party wall. Mm-hmm it's not the same as living next door to them over a fence. No. Right? And, and dare I say, the um, commotions of next door are never translated into your own house, <laughs> such, such as they can be in a house on land situation. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Which
1: is a personal, personal opinion. <laughs>
0: yeah. You don't have to kind of knock on the wall, keep it down in there. No, no exactly. That's good. That's good. You designed it very well.
1: We can open our windows even at level seventy-one, so we don't. We do not live in sterilized, you know, environments where we can't just get fresh airflow.
0: Mm-hmm. How does that work? Because you got. You said you have an outdoor garden area too, right, or on your balcony?
1: I or well, garden, at was that long? at that at that height, you've got to be careful of open balconies.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, um, but we have what we call a winter garden. So. We can step out onto a balcony, we can close the door behind us, Mm -hmm. and on the balcony, uh, there's operable glazing. So, in times of high wind, that operable glazing shuts under wind pressure. But Mm -hmm. on normal days, which most days are, open it up, fresh air.
0: Who's got the penthouse?
1: Um, The penthouse is occupied by a sky deck. Ah. And so the people of Melbourne, the people of anywhere, have access to the top of the top two levels of the building to see Melbourne in the round.
0: Wow, I've never been up there. I loved them. The view must be spectacular.
1: It's beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful to see cities from that height.
0: You probably see Sydney from there.
1: On a clear <laughs> day, you can see San Francisco.
0: <laughs> oh, that is so funny. Um, Mm -hmm. What have been the biggest changes you've seen in design and architecture throughout your career?
1: Oh, look, (laughs) phenomenal. I'm so fortunate. You know, I've been working for 50 years, and when I started in the office at Robin Boyd, I sat on a tall stool with a drawing board, tracing paper, T-square, and drawing pins. Mm. The the studio, and I drew with an HB lead, Oh my god. And um, the studio had one Bakelite telephone. Wow. But it had a it had a, a maestro coming in every day, you know, working side by side with us. So it was just it was beautiful working with a mentor like that. The technology both in materials, engineering and systems. You know, the systems inside inside our office, just out here, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the computer programs, they're just, it's phenomenal yeah. what the accuracies and the yeah. checks and balances and the ability to design and quickly see uh, what you're creating with virtual models and things is just, just amazing. And then the talent of young people, young architects, uh, to deal with all of that is is profound. It's compelling. It's amazing stuff. You know, my the biggest problems that I faced was you know getting the line on the paper right, <laughs> and uh, and hoping <laughs> that, that my dimensions added up. <laughs> and, uh, and now it's just uh, it's quite different. It's an incredible you know, amount of time yeah. and
0: energy that used to go into the work. It, it just yes, like, this, just the basic kind of things that you used to do drawing, etc.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the other thing is, of course, you know, the environment that we live in, and the need to think about sustainability, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, global protection. um, You know, there's a, a stronger and stronger, appropriately stronger move towards being very conscious about your design, passive design. Against the elements, and also the selection of materials with um, you know appropriate embodied energy uh, and embodied carbon um, levels, etc. And I think that this this is really becoming uh, important, and certainly a part of the education of young architects and the responsibility of architectural firms to take. Uh, you know, to
0: lead, to lead in. Yeah, absolutely, totally agree.
1: And and the other thing that's really happened is now, the buildings have become taller, bigger, more more engineering requirements. Mm-hmm. The exploration into multiple elevators in one shaft, elevators that can travel horizontally to link buildings. Mm-hmm. This whole thing, you know, the the the, the movement and safety within buildings. I mean, you can go on and on. Uh, we're just living in an in evolving world where higher density is important, mm-hmm. appropriate land use, respect of the land, is fundamental. Mm-hmm. And if, if higher buildings are part of the solution of using this planet in, in, in an appropriate way, then the way that those tall buildings work together... <laughs> And, and, you know, safety and, um, and vertical transportation become fundamental.
0: When you think what's happened from those early days of being on the drawing board with your pins and HB pencil, uh, you know, 50, possibly 50 years, what, what do you think the next 50 years could look like? like can, you well, imagine, I... can you imagine what that might be like?
1: well, I can't imagine what 50 years is going to be like. I can't imagine what tomorrow is going to be like. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <But> Damn. <laughs> right, okay. Well, that's disappointing. But look, but, <laughs> but look,
1: there comes a point where there's no need, really, I don't think, to go, everything to go higher and higher and higher. We're in a period where we're searching the benefits of you know densities and benefits of land use and i think we'll come to a point where that will be determined and then it's the way we achieve those you know, in environmental terms that will become more sophisticated mm-hmm. so you know it's, it's look when i started in architecture and i was doing my first house that was a hell of a challenge mm-hmm. i had no idea where i would be in 50 years or what I'd be doing. Mm. It was that challenge at the time that fully absorbed me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's how it's gone all my life, that I haven't actually worked to this point where I thought that in in, in this amount of time, this is who I would be, mm-hmm. what I would be doing, and how I would be doing it. Mm-hmm. I think that um, if you have a set of skills in a certain direction, you work those skills and you learn those skills as best you can Mm -hmm. to the best of your ability Mm -hmm. and you keep going. And that collectively keeps making the world a more innovative, you you know, you're one little grain of sand in the world that's trying to do what you do as well as you can and that all leads to a communal improvement in everything. Hopefully, mm-hmm. hopefully. So, in fifty years' time, I suppose I can't really—I wouldn't predict what the world would be like, but I would say that um, I want it to be a wonderful place for those eight granddaughters of mine.
0: Oh, <laughs> that is beautiful.
1: And um, and you know, I think I, I think there is a global awareness of what needs to happen in terms of preservation of the planet. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's a lot of cliches that you can go on about in that regard, but in very simple terms, if everyone does their bit, then, you know, maybe, just maybe the world will be a far better place in all regards.
0: Well, I guess you kind of, I was going to ask you the final question, Carl, have you designed your life, but you kind of said that, just kind of summed it up. <laughs>
1: well, I've, I've never been good at designing my life, but I think I've been good at designing the footsteps on the path. Mm, so lovely. every every step I've taken, as I said before, I've taken that step or every opportunity I've been given, I've taken it seriously and done it as well as I can. And for some reason that has allowed me a very rich and, to me, meaningful life. And I think um, I've been okay at those footsteps and totally hopeless at planning the journey. (laughs) But luckily, the footsteps have been safe and they've made the journey rich. (laughs) That's
0: the engineer in you. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know, you're an incredible mind and and talent and... A wonderful human being. And I, I just want to say, I've just, I feel i got goosebumps talking to you today. And it's not often that happens. I'm, not, I'm a sensitive guy, but, <laughs> uh, but it's been really wonderful. To just, it's a, and a true honor to spend this time with you. And I appreciate it so much. And our listeners will too, in understanding more about you and your journey and your beliefs and all that you're doing. And I really, really want to thank you today, Carl.
1: Oh Vince, thanks very much. They're very kind words, but let me just say one thing. Um, I'm just fortunate that I fell into architecture. It could it could have gone another way, possibly. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, but I think architecture, and I think again, I speak for uh, most definitely most architects. It's an incredible profession. Mm-hmm. It's a profession that's both creative. It's a profession where you see something uh, built for your efforts. It's a profession where you collaborate with the most amazing minds, and I don't mean just other architects, but mm. with artists, with historians, with um, you know, with 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 um, other architects, engineers. It's just look, it's it's a fabulous, fabulous vocation, mm. and the and the teaching of architecture makes you think outside of the square. Mm -hmm. So I think even people that have studied architecture and not practiced come out of it with a a rich way of viewing the world, a holistic way of viewing the world and a caring way of viewing the world. And I think that that's, um, it's quite unique to architecture. It's a very broad way of thinking. It's not Mm -hmm. like a science where you go outside of your profession possibly to to look at the other aspects of life. This is a very all-encompassing profession, and um, I'm so glad that I somehow found my way into it and was able to survive through it.
0: And the world's a better place because of that too, so I want to thank you for that. And uh, I look forward to catching up with you in Melbourne. Uh, I will come to that Eureka Sky Deck. I want to have a look, uh, although I'm slightly scared of heights. But um, I want to thank you again, Carl, uh, and I uh, wish you all the best. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Vincent. Thank you for this invitation. It's been very, uh, very nice talking to you. Very enjoyable. Thanks, Carl. Cool. Okay. All the best. Thank
0: you. Bye. Okay. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Design Your Life from Lego to Skyscrapers. We'll take a small break before we launch a later series, Tied for Change a series dedicated to the oceans and the brilliant people and brands working to preserve and enjoy them. Kicking off Tide for Change, I'll be chatting with Nick Dutton, one of the founders of the brilliant African surf brand, Mami Wata. Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. If you found this episode inspiring, Please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.